The stock market takes a breather this week after a historic run-up in the S&P 500. It saw stocks increase over 19% already year-to-date. Yet our guest today is saying that we could even be going higher, and not just this year, actually well into 2024. Welcome, everyone, to Buy, Hold, Sell. I am your trader, Todd Schoenberger, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, Tobin Smith, out in sunny and hot Scottsdale, Arizona. And less hot guest- now, Todd. Less hot now. Less hot is always good to hear. I know yeah. I know you were baking in the sun a couple of weeks oh. ago, so that's wonderful to hear. But I have to say, our featured guest today is smoking. We have Dr. Ed Yardeni, the president of Yardeni Research, joining us today, who has been all over the, the, the media talking everything about the markets and the economy. And Dr. Ed, I have to go to you first on this one right now. We need to know, how did the Fed get all of this wrong? Well, I think the Federal Reserve is very focused on uh, monetary policy. Uh, they uh, consistently say that uh, they don't opine, they don't have uh, anything to do with fiscal policy. So I think they completely misjudged the impact of fiscal stimulus on the economy. And they continue to provide a tremendous amount of liquidity. So I think the combination of excessively stimulative fiscal and monetary policies is how we got that inflation surge. And I think it turned out to be actually a fairly transitory phenomenon related to the pandemic, but I don't think they even factored in the pandemic, which uh, obviously was a very unusual event. And so I, I think that uh, they kind of uh, uh, got, got uh, confused uh, uh, first on uh, the, the, the nature of inflation when it first reared its ugly head. And then I think they missed the fact that uh, it was in fact transitory, particularly for goods, and I think increasingly we're going to see for services. So they, they've had this notion that they had to tighten in order to bring inflation down. And I think a lot of the inflation forces have not been monetary in nature. Hey, Dr. Ray, right, but- uh, they, they have 300 economists there. Do you, <laughs> do you think somebody's working on a WTF in the uh, pandemic? And what did we learn? What lessons should we have learned I, from the pandemic? I would, I, would, I, would, I would hope so. Every now and then, I think Janet Yellen, when she was Fed chair, had a conference and monetary policy where basically the theme was, what are we doing wrong? What, why don't we understand inflation? Which I thought was mind boggling that the Fed at that point in time were, still didn't really have a clue of what was driving inflation. And they'll probably have another conference on it and then move on and kind of forget all that. And uh, yeah, you know, you know, to, uh, Dr. Ed, I'd love, you to, I'd love you to give our audience just a quick definition of what monetary policy is versus fiscal. Yeah. Policy. Well, uh, you know, the, the newspapers, uh, the financial newspapers are always focused on what happens in Washington from the policymakers. On the policy side, there's really three kinds of policies. There's regulatory policy, which if you're running a small business, you know all about that. And that's usually not a happy story for small businesses. Then there is fiscal policy, which is uh, tax policy and government spending policy. And as we know, uh, the deficits have been increasing for a long time as politicians have figured out that uh, it's uh, it's easier to spend money and just finance it uh, through uh, buying, issuing bonds and hope somebody will buy them uh, than uh, raise taxes. So uh, that's uh, what happens on the fiscal side. And it, it, it happened with a vengeance when we got the pandemic. We had three rounds of relief checks uh, sent to millions of Americans. I think the first round was uh, useful and, and worked its magic, but the, le- the last two rounds just uh, really provided way too much uh, purchasing power to the consumer and really hyped up 
inflation, which then took away the, the, the purchasing right. power, was self-defeating. And uh, then monetary policy has been around uh, ever since really uh, 1914, when the Fed started uh, uh, to be in business when it was created. And the basic uh, idea for, for the Fed was they were supposed to maintain financial stability, but somewhere along the way, they also felt that they had to basically control the economy, uh, keep inflation down and keep unemployment uh, rate down, which is a pretty tough thing to do uh, in, in tandem. Uh, but ever since then, they are basically have been uh, managing interest rates, not too well, as we know. Uh, and uh, over the past few years, they've concluded that not only can they raise interest rates and lower interest rates, they can also buy the, the Treasury's bonds uh, as a way to uh, stimulate the economy. And that's very controversial whether that really had any impact. Maybe the first round of doing so back in 2009 did so. But after that, it was kind of uh, useless. Uh, that was, so, I mean, go, go ahead, Todd. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to ask, is the Fed finished in your opinion? <laughs> you mean existentially? Or yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> let me rephrase. Essentially, there's I'll, guys like... Uh, uh, you know, uh, S Senator Paul, who's been saying, end the Fed. Uh, but uh, yeah. I, think, I, I hope they're done. Uh, they've raised interest rates from zero to 525 basis points, 5.25% uh, in basically a year, which is a very aggressive tightening. It's the most aggressive since Volcker did his thing uh, to, to bring inflation down. Uh, but even the Fed recognizes their long and variable lags from uh, just raising interest rates to the impact on the economy, we had a banking crisis, didn't last very long back in March because the Fed came in and provided liquidity through a banking facility. Uh, but we know that the commercial real estate market is in trouble and will only get uh, worse. We know that uh, bankers are tightening lending conditions, so that'll get uh, worse. So I don't think we really need to have any more tightening to bring inflation down. And I'm not a big proponent of slowing the economy down to bring inflation down. I'm a big believer that the government should leave us alone and let us figure out how to increase productivity as the best way to bring inflation down, keep profits strong, and most importantly, allow real wages to go up. You know, uh, Doctor, I, um, I I started about a little after you did uh, uh, at uh, Kidder Peabody, mm -hmm. and uh, E.F. Hutton was, you know, one of our arch enemies, of course. Right. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I was selling bonds to pension plans in 1982, right. and you know, here's this young buck, and I'm saying. Dude, 18%? Stevie Wonder yeah. could make money in this thing, okay? Just buy the freaking <laughs> bonds, hold them for 30 years, and you'll it'll be in a bull market, right? And they all laughed at me. Yeah. Uh, and of course, it was yeah. it was back, absolutely right. Back, back, back then, I was at E.F. Hutton. Uh, that was the beginning of my career. And uh, back in 1983, I came up with a concept of bond vigilantes. Yes. Being that you want to own bonds because they're so... They're in such a powerful position to regulate the economy that they're going to do it much better than monetary policy and they'll bring inflation down. And as you know, by the time uh, uh, Bill Clinton came into office, uh, he was in awe of the bond market. He was scared of the bond market. And uh, we had a lot more fiscal discipline under a democratic administration, which was really uh, pr pretty Im impressive. But I completely agreed with you, your position back then. I thought bonds were very attractive. Uh, which kind of raises the question of what, what what are they now? Yeah, right. Well, I remember, I mean, you know, I remember when the uh, run on the uh, pound sterling uh, hit and everybody's saying, you know, it was that damn Yardini who came up with the bond vigilantes and 
and Christy was right. There were really are bond vigilantes. Uh, well, yeah, I, the, I, the financial markets can have a very important impact on fiscal and monetary policy. I think we're maybe getting sort of a hint of that. Uh, I know everybody blames the Fitch rating, rating agencies uh, for uh, blowing the whistle on the federal deficit, but come on, I mean, we all know that the deficit's uh, a, a reckless phenomenon. Our fiscal policies have been profligate. And uh, I'm I'm starting to get a notion here that the bond vigilantes are making a comeback. You know, remember that back in, in the 80s, I know it's not a history lesson, Todd, but you know, when when the Volcker raised the rates to 18% and my mortgage was 16.5%, by the way. Me, me too. Um, yeah. There was this thing called the deficit and or the, the debt outstanding, and it was about $220 billion. Yeah. So now we raise rates like crazy, but we owe $32 trillion if you add it all up. And we only have like a you know a $25 trillion economy. I, where was Fitch four years ago, three years ago, two years ago? I mean, what, yeah. what was it the January, you know, 2020, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, insurrection that finally put them over the top? Yeah, well, as you know, uh, what was it, 2011 or was it 13 when the uh, S&P, when, when, when the yeah. S&P, yeah. I forget which year it was, but it was back back then, the S&P downgraded uh, the, the government debt. But uh, again, I think uh, Fish isn't telling us anything we didn't know, uh, have known for a while. It's just, you know, now because uh, the economy is doing better, uh, there's uh, an old concept that may be making a comeback here, crowding out the idea that you know, if the government's going to borrow this kind of money for infrastructure spending, for stimulating onshoring and all that, that's great. But uh, aren't they going to crowd out uh, every, everybody else? And, you know, I mean, clearly the bonds are going to get bought. The question is only at what yield and what are the implications for the economy? The um, so, so, well, on the, on the Fitch uh, downgrade, though, why now? Well, I mean, what's the economy is still humming. We had a very healthy yeah. GDP report. Um, I know yeah. we have the jobs report coming out tomorrow, but all expectations is we're going to be status quo. Everything should yeah. be just fine. So what's the purpose of the downgrade? I have no idea. Uh, I, mean, I think they got great PR. I think, you know, they did. Yeah. Fitch used to be important. Now Fitch really isn't important on a, on a relative basis. Yeah, but um, I think, uh, look, I, I think uh, the bond yield has been going up the past few days, not because of Fitch. But uh, because the economy has turned out to be stronger than was widely anticipated, because there is going to be just a slug of uh, notes yeah. and bonds issued by the Treasury in, in August, because the Japanese uh, central bank has decided to uh, uh, allow interest rates to go up uh, somewhat uh, over there. Uh, so I think there's been kind of a lot of supply and demand factors that have pushed uh, bond yields down. What I'm counting on is for inflation to continue to surprise us to the downside. And I've observed over the years that expected inflation and expected Fed policy in reaction to inflation is much more important to the bond yield than is uh, supply and demand. So, so expectation is more important than than how many people are buying today and selling today? Well, I think uh, clearly the, uh, the perception of what the Fed's going to do in response to inflation has an impact on short-term interest rates. And then in turn, that has an impact on the bond market. So if, in fact, uh, the Fed is done raising interest rates, which I, I think they are, uh, then I think in, uh, the reason that investors are willing to buy a bond today at 4%, a 10-year bond at 4%, uh, when they could get 5% on a, a two-year or something close to that, is because a lot of people think that uh, you know you can't roll over two years 
you know, over the next 10 years and beat yeah. what you can get uh, at 4%. And I agree with that. So you continue to see inflation or the deflation argument seems to be you're going to stick with that. But are yeah. we going to hit the 2% mark? I think we are. I think, um, look, um, my, my overriding uh, thesis for the uh, decade of the 2020s uh, is what I call the roaring 2020s. I started talking about that at the beginning of the decade and immediately that looked delusional. We got, yeah. hit, by, we got hit by the pandemic. Uh, we 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 we've seen inflation make a comeback. We've seen interest rates soar, but it's looking less delusional of late. Uh, I don't think that artificial intelligence is all hype. I think there's a lot of uh, potential in, to increase productivity, but it's not just artificial intelligence. There's robotics or automation, na- uh, quantitative uh, com- computing. There's a lot of technologies out there that really can increase the productivity of all businesses, uh, not just a few, which was kind of what happened. In the past, we'd have our productivity booms, but they didn't impact all businesses. I think this time around, we could have a productivity boom. I think we were starting one before the pandemic hit. And if I'm right, uh, I think productivity could grow at an astounding rate of 4%, which sounds delusional. But the reality is we've had uh, productivity booms in the past where productivity increased 35 to 4.5%. So that's what I'm counting on to really kind of save the day and continue to bring inflation down, um, help uh, corporate profits stay strong, and as I said before, allow wages to rise faster than than prices. And I think we're starting to get a hint of that. Today's productivity report for the second quarter was uh, mind-boggling. It was a very strong uh, productivity number. It was so strong that even I don't believe it, and I'd like to believe it, it. Uh, but uh, the data as it came out, uh, really supports the, the disinflation idea that unit labor cost inflation is, in fact, coming down pretty sharply. Yeah, you know, and I, um, as a fan of the four Ds that you proffered, detente was one of yours. And uh, one would assume that uh, whatever the Russian-Ukraine thing ultimately turns out to be, that we're then going to, A, have a boost in productivity by not putting all you know the money into the war thing and, and the people into the war thing and so on and so forth. Um, the other side of, of your D's is demographics. And I'm just struck by a number I got today. By the way, I got it through um, bard.com, the greatest. It makes ChatGPT you know, look like a kindergarten. And I was trying to come uh, 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 add to a thesis I have, which is that Jeepers, if 15,000 boomers are turning 65 or 70 every day until 2032, by the way, not just 2030, mm-hmm. how many uh, Gen Z's are turning? And the answer is 17 per day. I mean, it's 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 so that huge gap is structural. It's not cyclical. Yes. Uh, and um, yeah, there's people like me who are 65. I, what do I do? What would I do if I don't work? And my golf game is as good as it's ever going to get. <laughs> if I chase young girls, I'll mess up yeah. a marriage of 40 years. So know, uh, when when I was when I was younger, I used to think I was uh, special. Uh, but then along the way, I, I kept uh, having conversations with people like you, fellow baby boomers, and I realized there's 75 million of us kind of going through the same thing. And it, it's exactly been my story. I'm 73 and I'm still working. And I tell people they're going to take me out in a box because I don't play golf, as you said. I play tennis and that only takes like an hour a day and I don't do it every day. <laughs> no pickleball? Come on, Ed, no pickleball yet? <laughs> no, no, no. 
But it's but it's a huge story, the demography. It's been huge all along. The baby boomers have had an outsized impact on the economy. And now a lot of my friends are retiring. And what do they do all day? Well, some of them do play golf, but they also go out to restaurants, which is why the services economy is doing so well. Between going to the early bird specials uh, and, and, and breakfast, uh, they sometimes stop off at the doctor just to make sure that they're still uh, in, in good shape. And once they uh, get the okay, they go travel abroad. So there's a tremendous amount of, look, there's $75 trillion in net worth being held by the baby boomers. That's yeah. half of the total net worth of the household sector. What do they save all this money for? To Well, to retire and to spend it. And that's what they're doing. And I don't think they're going to be able to spend it all. They're going to try, but I think they're going to leave some to their kids. And I don't think they, I think that, I think we're going to see a surprisingly low savings rate up ahead here as the younger generation anticipates that they're going to inherit, inherit something. And the older ones say, what am I saving for anymore? Let's spend it. Let's have a great time. Yeah. I was interested in the data that came out that, that uh, households over 70 years old, you know, typically in the old days, the allocation would be 80% bonds, you know, no risk type stuff. And now it's like 70% stocks and 30% bonds, which is, I think, a generational shift. But the other one that gets me here, Ed, is I, we did some numbers on how many people, how many households out of the 155 million households, how many people in those households are either getting Social Security or federal benefits or union benefits or corporate pension benefits, yeah. or have a 401k, a 401k, a, a, a Roth IRA, the greatest thing in the history of the world. And yeah. the answer is about uh, almost 70% of households have one of those things. And those checks keep coming every month. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and so your spending point to me is, is just spot on. Mm -hmm. um, it, oh, by the way, 65% uh, of people who are married over 65 own their home for cash. Right. If they live in one of the 63 super counties in the United States that is 75% of our GDP, yeah. they've owned probably three houses. The last mm -hmm. one they own is free and clear. It's literally got to be worth at least two million bucks. Yeah. Um, they have well, liquidity. You know, I, yeah, I, I think I think you and I are experiencing all that. Uh, you know, I'm 73. I've been getting Social Security. I, I waited and, and, and to, until to, the end. To the tail end of that. And uh, I'm obviously not keeping very much of it because I'm still working and you get taxed on your social security. Uh, and then um, the 401k, the, uh, my broker said, I got to start taking it out. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I do have more money, more income coming in. And I think you know, everybody focuses on wages and, and uh, salaries. But I think you're right. When you add up uh, net interest income, dividends, uh, pensions, uh, social security, uh, it's about 70% uh, equivalent of wages and salaries. So it's a big source of, of income for a lot of people. Well, you're so mm -hmm. right. And people, you know, again, I think it's you know, forest through the trees thing here. For some reason, uh, as I say, I, I put something out this week about saying that, that if you just do the math, it's literally mathematically impossible for us to have a recession unless... The Fed, you know, goes all Volcker jiggy, mm -hmm. which they won't because I lived in D.C. for 30 years. And let me tell you, rule number one for the Fed, you don't freaking crash the economy in a presidential election cycle. Uh, it just, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it, it only happened once and then we had a civil war, right? So, uh, excuse me, not civil war, but we had, we had problems. Um, chaos. Chaos. So now, uh, what is, the, you know, let's flip it around a little bit. 
what would make you worry that we had a recession coming? Well, I think, uh, again, the focus has to be on the consumer. Without a consumer uh, retrenchment, you don't get a recession. And uh, I've been arguing that we've been in a rolling recession since uh, the beginning of last year. The Fed started raising interest rates and uh, the naysayers, pessimists, bears, doomsayers said we're going to have a terrible uh, recession and they kept uh, waiting for it. And I said, there's nothing to wait for. It's happening. It's just kind of rolling through the economy and not adding up to an economy-wide recession. So we've had it in housing. Uh, then the consumers decided to pivot away from goods to services because what happened when the lockdowns were over is people had cabin fever and they just had to buy something yeah. to get release that dopamine to make them feel good. Yeah. And they couldn't really buy services because they were still restricted. So they bought mm -hmm. goods and by middle 2001, they kind of had just about everything they wanted and they started being able to buy services. So they pivoted to services. Meanwhile, the poor retailers ordered another slug of merchandise that they couldn't sell. And by 20, late 2021 into 2022, they got stuck with uh, inventories, which by the way, has helped to bring inflation, inflation down, down for goods. Okay. Um, so um, I, I'm not in that camp. I mean, I, I listen to the bears, the pessimists. I think they're, you know, I think one of our colleagues, uh, strategist said something to the effect that uh, bears will make you think and bulls will make you money. And I, I, thought, I thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> that well, is very clever. Todd, well, I, always, always, I, I know we got a break here. We got a yeah, break here. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I, I still no, wanted ahead. to have the cage match between Rosenberg and Yardini. I, I just think that that, <laughs> that would be fantastic television. That, I've, I've done there and been been there. Been there. Okay. The, the, the undercard the for the Musk for the Musk uh, Zuckerberg one. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. There you go. So listen, let's leave it right there because uh, we're going to take a break now. But coming up after the break, we have to ask Dr. Ed what his forecast is for the S&P 500 for next year because he told us off camera, and I have to say it's probably the most optimistic number that anybody has heard on Wall Street today. But we'll be right back. We have Dr. Ed Yardini with us. He is the president of Yardini Research. Please go to Yardini.com for all of his research, all of his commentary. And he's got a great newsletter, by the way. He's got a great newsletter. He does. It's, on, it's on LinkedIn as well. It's wonderful to subscribe to it. Highly recommend it. But we're good. we have Dr. Ed with us, and we'll be right back after the break. Please stay with us. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, Grab a drink and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous 
business odds makers and influencers. Every episode of Double Down with Breslow is packed with insider tips, deeply skilled analysis, and in-depth discussions. Don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting. Listen to Double Down with Breslow on the Evergreen Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Double Down with Breslow, the business of sports betting podcast. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube. In a world where secrets have consequences and lies can't be hidden forever, immerse yourself in the gripping new thriller No Lie Lifts Forever by Todd M. Schoenberger. Join Wall Street hedge fund manager Travis Carmichael as he delves deeper into a web of corruption and conspiracy, finding himself entangled in a high-stakes game where souls are at stake, and trust is a luxury he can't afford. Critics and readers can't get enough of this heart-pounding page-turner, calling it a masterfully crafted suspense novel that will leave you breathless. No Lie Lives Forever is a masterfully crafted thriller that will leave you guessing until the very end. With its intricate plot twists and unforgettable characters, this is a must-read for fans of suspense and mystery. From the mind of acclaimed author Todd M. Schoenberger comes a novel that will challenge your perceptions and keep you turning the pages late into the night. Critics and readers alike can't get enough of No Lie Lives Forever. It's been hailed as a gripping roller coaster ride, a true page turner that will leave you breathless. Don't miss your chance to uncover the truth. Immerse yourself in the suspenseful world of No Lie Lives Forever by Todd M. Schoenberger. Available now on Amazon and at finer bookstores near you. Welcome back to Buy, Hold, Sell. We're on the eve of the big July jobs report. We have an expert with us talking all things about the economy as well as the stock market. Dr. Ed Yardini from YardiniQuickTakes.com is joining us today. And we, we also tell all of our audience, please go to YardiniQuickTakes.com for all of his research because he definitely knows his stuff. So Dr. Ed, when we left it at the last break, we were talking about the potential for the S&P 500. You, everybody knows what your number is for this year, but what's your number for next year? Yeah, I, I've been using 4,600 uh, for the end of this year. And uh, that's been my target since the beginning of the year. And uh, sadly, it's, we're there already, sadly, because, you know, what, what do I do for an encore? What's next? <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave it at 4,600. I I think uh, the first half of the year is going to turn out to be better than the second half of the year, which is exactly the reverse of what the consensus was at the beginning of the year. Uh, but I think that'll set the stage for a very good uh, year in 2024, where I think earnings will be particularly strong. And so I think in 2024, we'll see the market end the year uh, around 5,400. Uh, the way I get wow. there is the way and I get I have it, Mike Wilson on the line. Hang on, Mike, what do you think? <laughs> The, the, the way I get there is, uh, you know, I think about uh, what earnings will be this year, and I still have $225 uh, 
And people like Mike Wilson and uh, some of the more bearish people have had something more like 185. Yeah. I suspect I'm too optimistic, but I think they're too pessimistic. And then uh, for next year, I, I think we will we'll get $250 a share for the S&P 500. And then for 2025, I see $270 a share. So obviously no recession. Economy continues to go. Productivity really kicks in. And so I think the market by the end of next year is going to be discounting something like $270 a share. And I multiply that by a forward PE of 20, which seems, seems awfully high, but that's kind of where we are now. And I think it's just a realistic uh, acknowledgement that the mega cap eight stocks, sometimes called the Magnificent Seven, but I like to throw in uh, Netflix into the into the mix. Mm -hmm. they, they're going to continue to trade at 25 to 35 uh, forward PEs. They are premier companies. Hey, Ed, um... I, you know, the argument during the, uh, you know, the no is alternative uh, space was that if the Fed was going to keep rates at what they did at basically zero and certainly negative after inflation, right. that stocks then deserved a higher multiple. But mm -hmm. when you, you know, go up 500, 600 basis points from zero, that means you need to discount those future earnings right. at a higher rate. So why would they, why would you still be at 20 with yeah, higher no. rates? Yeah, I, I've uh, I, I've been contrary on that because uh, you know uh, the reality is the uh, average uh, uh, PE historically has been uh, 15. 15. Uh, so 20 is right right up there. Certainly, well, you know, in an overvalued territory based on, on historical analogies. But you know, uh, consistent with my roaring 2020s uh, hypothesis, I think productivity is going to make a big comeback. I think. That's what's going to really fuel um, profits. And uh, most importantly, I think every company is a tech company. If you're running uh, any business in whatever industry you're in, if you're not using technology, you don't have to make technology, but you have to use technology. If you're not using technology to uh, increase your productivity, to improve what you're doing, you're going to be left behind. So I think technology companies definitely get a higher PE than uh, the 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 others, uh, but I think more of the others are going to use technology to uh, improve what they do. I mean, trucking companies are really no longer just trucking companies. They they're basically uh, uh, apps that uh, run a device called a truck. Yeah. Well, I you right. know I say it a, a sort of different way, which is that I don't use historical numbers anymore. Because to compare the economy, you know, where, where that seven or nine percent annualized return came from, I mean, the business model of the top ten market cap companies in the world is completely different. They're not bending any metal. They don't have any labor unions. Uh, you have the incremental cost of sending out another piece of code at zero, yeah. and so you have margins. I mean, remember, <laughs> this is me talking. Remember in the old days, Ed. You know, the profit margin was was skyrocketing if it got over seven, eight percent. You know, and, and now the top 55 percent, even though it was cut down to 40 percent, you know, last week of the market cap, the average gross margin, let's say before taxes, sure. is 25, 26 yeah. percent. So if you have four times higher gross margins in businesses um, that are also global, mm -hmm. How, how, why would you use a 15 market cap? I don't yeah. I don't get it. Well, again, uh, I think um, one has to be empirical, uh, not just theoretical. And uh, yeah. 
or even historical in, in the market. And the reality is, as you said, we've got these uh, big companies that are growth uh, companies. Uh, usually in the past, a small company would become a mid-sized company. Then once it became a large company, it was mature. It wasn't going to grow very fast. And its PE would uh, go down from where it was when it was a, a rapidly growing company. Uh, but now you're seeing these, uh, you know, these huge companies uh, continuing to grow and get uh, a very high PE for that. It is what it is. I mean, you got to factor that in when you're talking about valuation multiples. Yeah, and I also, I also, you know, was, I was surprised wrong when all of a sudden we had this arms race in Techland, and you know, 250,000 people were hired at an average $225,000 salary to to scale up for the demand as if that was a demand that was going like that, as opposed to being very cyclical pandemic-wide. Yeah. So somebody read those guys a riot act uh, and said, gentlemen, are you kidding me? So there's 350,000 less people in tech land who right. are employed and, and, and they're getting rehired, but they're not getting rehired at an average 255,000. Well, the, 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 the Zuckerberg was the one who really kind of got the message when he got cratered because this, Expenses were going on for this cockamamie metaverse thing. And uh, <laughs> then he suddenly realized that this is not good for my personal wealth. And he said, all I got to do is cut costs and I can show you how much money we could really make. And suddenly the other tech companies are doing the same thing. And so the, the mega cap eight that swooned quite sharply uh, last year, more on recession talk uh, than uh, on interest rates, I think, uh, yeah. suddenly have made it a remarkable comeback here. Uh, but I think they're kind of uh, due for a bit of a rest here. And I, look, take out the mega cap eight and you've got a, a forward PE of 16 and a half, right. which isn't ridiculously high. And uh, mm -hmm. if companies use technology to increase their productivity and profitability and still pay their, their, their workers real, real wages that are increasing, that's all good stuff that you want to pay, that you're going to have to pay uh, more than a 15 multiple for. And you made the point that... Um, uh, you know, any business now is a technology business. I mean, here I'm, I'm a publisher as well. Uh, we have 70 employees. Nobody's in. There's no office. Um, right. You know, th that that took uh, took a million and a half dollars of cash out of, right. the, you know, away from expenses. What do we do? We invested more in technology. Uh, okay. We hired more people on marketing and they spot my company to bring in more content. Um, has their overhead gone up? No. No, sales have gone up. Overheads flat. What business model was that like in the '80s? I mean, you know, my God. Well, we've we've been a rebel for a while here. We've been virtual since uh, 2007. Uh, that's when I started my company, and I told everybody just work from home. I'm not going to pay for for an office. Uh, and a few of them kind of moaned and said uh, they they wanted to have a, you know have an office, and they got used to it pretty quickly. And now they love it. <laughs> You know, a couple of them go on, uh, one of them goes to Spain for three months and she works from Spain and she, wow. there she is here. Yeah. I, I have an editor, I have an editor, uh, Melanie, who's in, in France. It's absolutely great for me because I'm on the Pacific coast. Yeah. I send her stuff, you know, when I'm done at five, yeah. it gets to her at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. She finishes at 11, but it's only nine o'clock or excuse me, it's yeah, only eight o'clock my IT guy is in Denver, and so uh, I, I, you know, he's 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 still up when I'm up, which is, uh, you know, I'm a night person, so I like to work at night, and uh, he's he's still working with me. So it's, uh, as you said, there's a lot of benefits to the flexibility 
if 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 you can run a business that way, and more and more companies can either do it that way or some hybrid solution. So Ed, there, there was a huge amount of retail money that's come in in the last 60 days into the market that um, sort of surprised me. Uh, that feels like FOMO to me. You mentioned a little about a pullback. I mean, th there are some areas when you start seeing, froth, just as an example, we have a trading service. And all we've been doing this week is shorting the short covers, American Semi, you know, uh, Superconductor, uh, NRI com companies on our buy list that, as I've tried to share with my subscribers, dude, when something goes up 100% in two weeks, that is, let me do the math, that is 25 years of normal stock market profits in two weeks. Yeah. We sell this, and then if it was because of short covering, and by the way, a lot of these didn't show they had a lot of shorts, but if you go deep into the Bloomberg, as Todd is his favorite instrument, these are naked shorts. I don't want to get too crazy, but in other words, they're shorting that was illegal. and. Yeah. All we've been doing is buying puts, betting against the price to come down. We've, we we made more money in the last week having these things go down than we did having them go up. Yeah. Yeah. So we still have this, you know, the, the CTA trading yeah. apps that are all algorithmic, that all buy this stuff. We have new retail money coming in. Yeah. But investors need to understand that process uh, sure. because, because, you know, they're not the smartest guy in the world that they we bought uh, – yeah. You know, a company well, that went up 100 percent in two yeah, weeks. It had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with you. It had to do with short covering. Yeah. Well, look, um, I, I I had the good fortune at the end of October to call the bottom in the market. I you called it right on, baby. Was, uh, I said October 12th was probably the low, and I did say there was a new bull market, not not a bear market. So uh, the thesis has worked out uh, really uh, well for us. But over the past several days, I've been warning people that the bond vigilantes may be coming back here for a little while. And uh, you want to be uh, just, just aware that some of the uh, most uh, overvalued areas of the market uh, may be prone to some sort of uh, correction. Uh, but again, I, I could have raised my target for the end of the year. I mean, 4,600, why not keep going? And the answer is, well, it's, it's, a, it's six months ahead of schedule. And I need to see, so, so I need some time here to get earnings uh, yeah. up sufficiently. And, yeah. uh, I'd like to see valuations cool off a little bit. And, and that does make sense. And and we have a few minutes left on the show. I, I want to ask you this, Dr. Ed, when we started this year and we've had a long list of, of bulls on buy, hold, sell, and really starting from day one this year, we've had everybody was saying, yes, yeah, it's going to be a great year in the markets. But a year ago, during the beginning of the tightening cycle, the inflation was sky high. Really, everybody had it wrong. Uh, I don't think anybody on Wall Street was thinking. I would think it was more of the Mike Wilson camp thinking stocks yeah. were going to drop. Wh how well, did everybody get it wrong? Well, you know, I, I took some credit for calling the bottom on October 12th, but I should yeah. have mentioned I also called it uh, on June 16th. So I was a little bit early. Uh, I, I was in the correction camp. And when you really look at the at the bear market, it really wasn't in a bear market for 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 many days, I think it was like yeah. a handful of maybe 20 days that you actually were down at 20% or more. Most of the other days were still in a correction uh, camp. Look, I, I think what we're learning once again here, stocks really should be held for the long run. You should be uh, you know, collecting your dividends. You could should be investing in, in, in quality companies because the geniuses that are going to tell you to get out at the top are never going to tell you to get out at the bottom. And by the time they do, you'll... You'll, you'll just feel like, you know, you missed the whole thing and you'll be sick of the whole thing. You just got to stick with the market uh, th through thick and thin. I mean, obviously, every now and then we want to watch out for a great depression. We want to watch out for the great financial crisis. But 
you know, all this talk about how horrible things are is just like, it's crazy because um, the economy is doing really well. We're all doing, uh, on average, really well. I shouldn't yeah. say everybody's doing well. But uh, when you look at the macro economy, real GDP is at an all-time record high. Yeah, yeah. I, also, I just add, Todd, that, you know, whether it's, I, I'm not saying it's right or wrong or whatever, but the facts are that the top 20% of households own about 85% of the wealth in the United States. And that could answer a lot of, it could be an answer to why do we have some of these great, you know, political divides. But, yeah, well, there's also pensions. I mean, you know, a lot of people own, own them through through pensions. Yeah, absolutely. 401k have been very, very popular. So I don't think everybody, you know, 80% is getting totally left behind. And of course, real estate is something that a lot of people own and and that's uh, done uh, quite well. And as you said, you know, no, nobody's really taken the present the discounted value of social security payments and, uh, you know, calculated what the net worth impact is of that. But the reality is, a lot of people uh, are doing, uh, you know, are, are collecting Social Security, and that's that's a source of income. A lot of uh, state and local government employees retire at the age of 50, and yep. they get an awfully nice uh, payment. So I, I think to your point, uh, it's, a, it's a very complicated economy out there, and you can't just generalize and say, oh, the consumers are running out of purchasing power without really understanding all the sources of purchasing yeah, power. Yeah, I never get that, Ed. I never get that when someone comes on and says, well, our numbers say that, that the you know that the stimulus checks have run out, the cash balances are getting lower, and yeah. to which I say, which cash balances, um, yeah. <laughs> and why are you know where 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 are they? Yeah, well, uh, the pessimists right now are talking about uh, uh, student loans. Suddenly, people are going to have to, oh uh, yeah, loans, and that's going to cause a recession. I don't really, think so. yeah, five hundred eighty yeah. billion dollars in a twenty-seven trillion dollar economy. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, no, not going to happen. But but I think the bears now they're in that point. Ed, you've been along, along as long as I have. They're now in the rationalization. They've been wrong so long now that now they're like grasping at straws trying to, yeah, but what about, but what about, but what about? And they've sort of blinded themselves to the structural strength of this economy, 70% yeah. service, I mean, um, or more, uh, with, with, as I say, 63 counties in the, in the United States that account for now 74% of all the GDP. So if you're going to make an economic forecast on the United States, you first do the 63 counties because they, mm -hmm. they count, you know, five times more than every other county. And that, that ballast is what's keeping this economy strong. And, and people use the aggregate like every freaking county. You know, I mean, I happen to be in Maricopa County that is now the seventh largest GDP, has grown faster than any other place. Where are they coming out of? They're coming out of out of Midwest. They're coming out of, you know, Canada. They're coming out of, of lower growth areas to work and or retire. Maybe. And and the spending is try to get a seat in a, in a restaurant in, in Scottsdale on a Wednesday. It's not possible. I mean, unless you had a reservation, right? I was just in L.A. Same thing. I was just in San Francisco. Same thing. I, I you know, yeah, it's yeah, it's if you live in this little tiny, you know, bubble and you don't yeah. see the whole picture, then I can see how you become a pessimist. Um, and there you go. I don't get it. Yeah, no, I definitely. Well, I, you're, you're right there. So listen, we're going to wrap it up right there, guys. So I want to invite the audience to go to your dennyquicktakes.com, your dennyquicktakes.com. Look at Dr. Ed's commentary. It's great for individual investors. And for the institutional side, go to your denny.com. And, 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 and I suggest if you have a, a bearish person in your family, 
subscribe to it and then send him a copy of Ed's stuff because it'll maybe help the person not spit away their retirement money, okay? <laughs> That's thank great you. advice. Well, Dr. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today on Buy, Hold, Sell. You were terrific. We'd love to have you back again, especially if we could start seeing some of those numbers that you're forecasting. That would be great. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for everybody for joining us on Buy, Hold, Sell. We'll be back next time. Take care. I want you to smash that like button. (laughs) Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American Maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnerships YouTube channel.